0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, I'm Howard Burton, host and creator of Ideas Roadshow, and I'm delighted to present the following Pandemic Perspectives podcast, one of a special series of 24 podcasts that, together with our Pandemic Perspectives documentary and my book Pandemic Perspectives, A Filmmaker's Journey in 10 Essays, make up our comprehensive Pandemic Perspectives project looking at the COVID-19 crisis from a spectrum of different angles. Today's Pandemic Perspectives podcast features internationally acclaimed geneticist Stephen Shearer, whose pioneering research in the early 2000s on genetic copy number variation helped revolutionize our understanding of nothing less than the proper scope of genetic evolution. These days, as the Chief of Research at Toronto's celebrated Hospital for Sick Children, Steve mixes science with MetaScience, spending much of his time pondering what, concretely, can be done to optimize the chances of the next research breakthrough happening. This sort of thinking is always important, of course, but likely now more than ever, as by harnessing some of the recent developments that arose during the pandemic, biology is now poised on the threshold of a transformative revolution, the likes of which we can barely imagine. Perhaps a good way to begin is by asking you to elaborate on some of the comments you made during our recent filming session. So you talked about how surprised you were that productivity has increased in many ways during the pandemic at SickKids, despite what one would have thought. So perhaps you could talk a little bit more about that.
1: Yeah, when we, we look back on the, the years of 2020 and 2021, and in particular, you know, 2021, because we now have that data. We're in January of of 2022. Looking back, the productivity using the the typical academic metrics that we would use here at the Hospital for Sick Children's Research Institute, those being um, number of grants and grant dollars, number of publications, quality of publications based on different indexes, we actually did did really well. And in fact, in 2021, it was arguably our most productive year ever. So we're trying to fully understand what that means. I think there's probably three different ways to to explain it. One is that there was more money put into the system. We started to see that enter the system in late 2020 and through 2021, and, and our institute competed well for those funds. Um, the second being that the nature of the type of research we do is probably about thirty or forty percent laboratory based, the kind of the traditional science you know laboratory pipetting, beakers that kind of thing. and probably roughly sixty percent is more uh, computational or informatics based so you you can work at a computer screen remotely and not have to be physically on site. And the third is I think we related to number two is is the transition from Using your own data to using existing data sets for discovery. And many of our researchers had made that transition uh, pre pandemic. So, in fact, they could sit remotely uh, or in a hybrid type system and work quite productively. I'll just comment um, you know, I think the the groups that really blossomed through this were those that actually could maintain um, their laboratories, keep them open to generate original data and combine that with existing data sets. So in, 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 in a way, we we fortuitously lucked out because we were in the right place. And, and the big question is, you know, where do we take it going forward now?
0: Do you have any thoughts about that based upon what you've learned and your your experiences? Do you have any preliminary or tentative conclusions about what you'd like to be doing specifically going forwards and how that might change?
1: So this is the, the question of the day and uh, our leadership team's meeting on, on Friday to discuss this in more detail. But from my perspective, we're we're very well positioned. We we will be um, recruiting heavily in, in the in the next 12 months. We you know we have funding for upwards of eight new scientists. Um, so this is really spectacular. So the question for me is, you know, what's the balance of laboratory-based people versus computational, uh, and then those that, that do both. Um, recognizing most laboratories do, uh, at least those that are laboratory-based, also are doing computational. So you know, I'm kind of hedging that. You know, all of the certainly the well-funded laboratories will have access to the same publicly available sets that we would have access to, and probably have um, the intellectual capital to deal with that data productively so really to make ourselves unique to differentiate we'll invest more along those who are hypothesis driven those who are you know generating new ideas new data sets in their own laboratories and then comparing and contrasting that data with what's out there to kind of enable their discovery so so yeah we'll, we'll probably be more heavily towards the laboratory based uh, investigators
0: Okay, Um, so just to pick up on that, because I don't pretend to know anything about this, I can imagine that obviously, first and foremost, when you're doing something like this, the most important thing to be concerned with is the quality of the people, and the idea that you can make eight additional hires is, is obviously fantastic. But if you were to look at things in terms of what is required to do the most innovative research, taking that, or at least moving to the next level and looking at the equipment. I'm, and I know that in the past, you've been a very big believer in technology and the laboratory and how that can be transformative. I don't have any sense of what's going on, but I can imagine, broadly speaking, based upon the division that you gave, that there are two different types of innovations or two different types of technologies, given the same amount of data or the data sets that are out there. There is, on the computational side, the ability to process that data faster and uh, fancier somehow. I don't, I'm, I'm I'm at a loss for words because I simply don't know what that means, but I can imagine certainly computational power, processing power, perhaps uh, higher level graphic interface. I, I don't really know, but I can imagine that there might be ways of investing in hardware and maybe software and maybe even software development or what have you in order to be able to extract the highest quality ideas and innovations and test them from, from the the data that's there, like these microarrays I remember you talking about years ago, uh, something analogous now in terms of cutting edge technology in the laboratory to be able to do experiments and to be able to develop um, information that you might not have been able to have before. So is first of all, is that is that sort of thinking broad brush, is that reasonable? And if so, how would in your estimation, the split be in terms of what the ratio would be in terms of where you think the right investment balance would be between those two?
1: So these are the kind of questions that I, you know, I spend my days thinking about, and I actually ordered your book over the holiday. Oh, God,
0: that's not going (laughs) to (laughs) help.
1: About, you know, creating perimeter, and I actually think it will. I haven't had a chance to read it. I heard it it arrived since I've been working at home the last two weeks, but but looking at other books and talking to people and you know I've I've been preparing for my new role as chief of research for my entire career I always study different institutes and decisions and history of science and things like this I think to come to your question of you know what's going to happen next it, it, it's really the, the most important thing is the idea still the scientists we hire they hopefully will be the most creative and innovative thinkers and and the ones who will come up with the ideas to be tested in some way or another in the laboratory, either through direct um, hypotheses and observations or pulling data down. Most of our research is biomedical-based, uh, so I think the you know, we will be recruiting those who have the aptitude for new ideas, breadth of knowledge, um, you know, intelligence, and just people who wanna to, want to change things through their ideas. And uh, certainly in biology, you know, I teach my students that you're only limited by your creativity right now. We, we can pretty much do anything. It's kind of like chemistry in a way. We can, we can well it is chemistry. We can synthesize DNA uh, and RNA as we've seen through the pandemic. We can um, sequence genomes and, and we can actually edit them now using these new technologies of genome engineering. So you can kind of come up with a concept and design life and test it in the laboratory and figure out how you're going to move that forward into biomedicine. So it's really the key is the idea. There, there are some new, newer technologies that have come where often our young scientists that we recruit will be the experts in that technology because they may have helped develop it in their postdoctoral training or graduate training, or it will be the major driver for their uh, data generation. But we typically don't recruit people just on the on the technology. We would we would hire in technology specialists to work within larger groups. That's kind of our, been our style at SickKids, uh, and I think we'll stick to that. Um, it, what is interesting is that there's so much investment, in particular over the last two years, in biotech because of the aging population, but then COVID and the successes in some of the technology. People are putting money into this now that um, it's helping move everything forward faster, but we also have to compete um, with the private sector for these human resources. So it's a little bit of a give and take where we're training the people. And then at the same time, we're trying to retrain them or recruit them in. Uh, But now we're competing against the companies that we started. So, but anyways, um, it's, it really comes back to the idea. I I think this is going to be the, the, the way forward. There's nothing new there. The types of ideas will change.
0: Yeah. Uh, And I, I, well, I don't pretend to know, but for what it's worth, and this will save you the trouble of, of reading the book, uh, betting on people is always going to be the best way forwards. Finding the best people, and of course, that's a loaded phrase, and everybody thinks that they're a member of the best people class, and it's your job to be able to navigate that. But that's, of course, what, what things are going to depend on. I, I certainly believe that.
1: That's always the right answer. I think what's, what's really interesting is how much of an experiment you can, you can these people can be because if you take probably 75% of those people, they're all, let say, excellent. <laughs> and if you put them in the right environment, will 25% become outstanding? Or do you try to really spend all of your time trying to uh, you know, recruit those that you already know are outstanding? In other words, can the environment you provide to them influence the likelihood to, to move to the very top tiers and I, I actually think that that can help and and the environment is not just the technical environment or the funding environment it's the people around them actually absolutely that's been our our secret sauce here is I, I think we we've rec- we're very good at recruiting very high quality people and then surround them different stages of career with ideas and support to to help them, particularly the younger people but you know, sometimes it's the mid-career people move up to the the top levels, and then the the challenge for us in Canada is to retain those people. We can always get get really good young people coming in, but then when they they become superstars, uh, there's typically you know more money in the private sector in the United States, and so, so they they need to have added feel that they have added value in the institutional development things like that. And again, we do that well, but it, it's different time now. It's a different era. So figuring that out will be an, an interesting challenge going forward.
0: Yeah, so just picking up on this, cause this isn't where I thought we were gonna talk about, but uh, this is actually in a way more interesting. So I'm gonna talk about this. Uh, if you wanna talk about something else, feel free to interrupt me. But um, there, when you're institution building, again, these are not terribly revolutionary insights, but they're important. And when you're institution building, there are all these non-linearities and you mentioned some of them, obviously the environment, the social environment, and the idea that people are interacting together. And so you might have 15 excellent people, but if you do things right, you're gonna have an output which is much more than 15 times whatever your individual measure of excellence is. It's going to be the result of these people interacting, working together, building upon each other's resources and so forth. And similarly, if you're not careful or if you're unfortunate, you might have a situation where people interfere destructively with one another and, and they don't support that. I'm wondering to what extent there's a difference in culture in terms of the likelihood of constructive or destructive interference with respect to laboratory-based research versus more, let's say, independent computational research. They both, of course, have that degree of of interaction. And and now I'm moving into something where I know uh, absolutely nothing. But can you make a distinction? Can you say something in general, like in a laboratory, it's more significant to make sure that people are somehow like-minded or fit together in a particular way than you would do in a more computational environment? I think about, again, my experiences, and to some extent, you actually want people not who are at odds or, or, or hammerhead with each other, but who are come from different perspectives, who are probing, who aren't necessarily team players. They have to be respectful to some extent, but you're you're actually looking for a bit of conflict from a from a from an intellectual perspective. Maybe that's not quite the way it works at a laboratory setting, or maybe it is. Could you maybe elaborate on that?
1: Yes. So. Within the, a, a laboratory, um, it depends how you define a laboratory. So I would say our institution is quite um, similar to most major Western large academic institutions in that you have sometimes small laboratories and sometimes big laboratories that all operate within a department, for example. So typically the the tensions that I've seen happen, you know, with respect to, fighting over data and access to data happen within a, a given laboratory where there's one investigator uh, leading that laboratory. Uh, and typically it happens as the laboratory grows and becomes you know, more prolific. We don't see a lot of that at our place. We, we've had, had issues um, within the, de- the, the departments, typically a department, we call them programs, but department or program head uh, would be Involved in building that program and be in that role for ten years, so they they have quite a bit of influence on the types of people. One of the interesting changes that has happened in the last decade or so is this concept of open laboratory sharing. So you build one big physical space for three or four laboratories that are doing similar things, say you know disease gene discovery or whatever it is, so that they can share common equipment within the lab, so you don't have to buy. Four of each. You know, you buy one or two of these machines, but typically there's a highly trained technologist that's supported by the institution. But sometimes there can be friction there. That's that's kind of a new area. It's it's more of a, I think a territorialism and and access to space and things like this. But most of it is manageable. One of the areas that I, I'm thinking a lot about right now, and in particular, in the area I, my own research is, is is human genome research, as you know is access to data you can get access to the data but in some cases you have to pay to get access to it even though it's op- open you know public data mm. um the welcome trust uh, uk biobank just released uh just before christmas two, uh, what was it Two hundred thousand whole genome sequences it's the biggest yeah it's unbelievable uh data dump but but to access it you have to have a, a you have to pay a fee I don't remember how rough, roughly what it is. It's like five or 10,000 pounds or something. But then if you wanna do the kinds of analyses my lab can do, you have to do them in a cloud environment and you have to pay for the processing charges in the cloud. Uh, the data source is so big, we can't download it into our local high-performance computing center at SickKids even though it's, it's actually the biggest one in biomedicine in Canada. So you have to in the cloud, so you're forced and then you have to pay and it's actually, of course, more expensive to do it in the cloud than on your own local compute environment, which is free. So um, so there's going to be these these great uh, limiting steps to get into the data. And it'll be interesting how institutions deal with that, because you know, probably sick kids, uh, there's only a handful of us who have enough grants right now to to, to get into that data whereas probably the NIH labs are looking at the data. So how, as an institute head, you know how do I figure out how do we get the resources so everybody can get access to this data? And there's issues around approving through the ethics and, and legal to get to this, this data. So that's a kind of new, new infrastructure that has to be put in place when you're running a biomedical institute that wasn't there before. Yeah. And then at the same time, you'll have a small laboratory that's still doing very traditional one-off experiments with you know, a grad student and a postdoc and trying to make sure that they feel like they're treated fairly too.
0: Yeah, well, lots to do. One, one question before, I'd like to move to some speculations and the notion that we're going through a revolutionary time in, in biomedical research, because that's my perspective, but what do I know? And I'd like to bounce a couple of thoughts off you. You've alluded to some of these, but I'd like to explore that in a little bit more detail. I know we don't have a, a huge amount of time, but before I, I get there, one question about something that you alluded to with, her, uh, well, you actually mentioned it several times. I mean, the question of money, this is not cheap research to do. And the idea of, of your institute being able to compete in terms of the research and the culture and the environment and the results, So one of the problems that people sometimes point to with a country like Canada is that for very understandable reasons, it's reluctant to focus. It's reluctant to say, here are a couple of centers that we're going to really put our resources into. And so there's this concerned that for a country that on the whole doesn't have a tremendous amount of resources, certainly when you want to compare it to the, the the United States, and I'm just talking about the public sector, I'm talking about like NIH or something like that equivalent, um, as opposed to the private sector, which is also, as you say, a very large threat. There is a concern that they might try to spread things out a little bit too thinly. That was something that we, you know, when, w- with respect to perimeter, it was really something which pushed against The prevailing ethos, which is, again, understandable. It's not as if you can't justify it. But the problem is when you're really trying to compete internationally, you need to bring a tremendous amount of resources to bear to rise above the noise. So I guess my first question is, do you have some frustration sometimes associated with that, that it's difficult to get the federal government or perhaps even the provincial government to say, this institution that you were the head of research of is Kids Hospital is something where we're going to put a disproportionate amount of resources because we recognize that that's the way we're going to be able to have really top quality science. And unfortunately, that means that we're not going to be able to have sufficient resources to be able to, to fund you know, every institution or, or, or every place. We're going to have to focus and we're going to have to put really a disproportionate amount of money in a few particular Institutions that are known to be either world class or have the potential to really be world class—is that a—is that a concern that you sometimes grapple with?
1: Um, <laughs> it's an aspiration. Uh, I think this this is this is what we need in Canada. Um, I, I was kind of laughing when you're explaining it because it's it is the the issue that every new government program promises to try to address and then nothing really happens because things become fragmented and torn apart and David Naylor who uh, wrote the last uh, federal review on funding uh, previous president of the University of Toronto calls it the Canadian peanut butter effect you spread it thin across you know the whole loaf of bread as opposed to putting big chunks of peanut butter on a few pieces of toast yeah so you know we 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 don't do that. That's not the Canadian way. And you can even see it through the COVID funding period. And the Canada Foundation uh, for Innovation was set up to do this through some of their major science initiatives. And and in fact, they've delivered on this quite well, I think. And I I have to say that I I think the Canadian government has has come up with a very good funding formula. It's just there's a few missing pieces right now. and, And they're kind of in this current year trying to add Well, how do I put it? Where where they put a lot of um, infrastructure money in for things like equipment and and space renovations and buildings, and then other places they put um, quite a bit of project money in to pay for experiments and people. But there's very few where they put them together, right? And that would happen in the United States or on a top-down approach in in Europe or in particular the UK. So um, I think one of the issues is we don't have. a welcome trust or a Gates in Canada, we've got some things that are pretty close. But anyways, uh, putting the whole kind of um, different pieces of the puzzle together in one place, uh, it has has actually happened maybe in a few, few places in Canada. And I would argue at SickKids, we have done that, but to make that sustainable and really take the funding level to the top, we need that added investment. So yeah, there's a lot of discussion. I think uh, COVID actually um, research Um, will help in the overall levels, but it actually will add to the fragmentation because in Canada, the the healthcare um, is administered provincially. So in fact, it is fragmented. And a lot of the resources have been put in to try to bring the data together from across the country. We haven't done that so well, to be honest. So I think the successes have been more regional. But yes, that's something we strive for. And we we try to look at other models. um, And I, I think we mentioned it last time, we uh, have had successes because we now have a, a chief scientific officer that allows us to uh, communicate with the government, which is really great. So it's early in the, in the game. I, I think we will we'll get there at some point. The, the, other, the other aspect of course is, you know, we have, what is it, 36 million people in the second largest country in the world, uh, mostly concentrated, you know, within 60 kilometers or so of the of the U.S. border, but it's still quite distributed and fragmented. So, trying to attract the the, the critical mass of human resources you need in one place in a, in such a massive country is is difficult. It's this issue of, you know, I think this is the big the big challenge going forward for us. One of them is the way that serendipity has played into scientific discovery through, in a way, influenced by physical interactions. So sitting in the same coffee room around a department where that aha moment comes because two people say two different things and then the guy in the next chair, chair over says, aha, you know, this is the connection. Will that play out as we have virtual meetings on Zoom or you know, how fast do do we need to bring people back in physically on site? So the way science played out for the last hundred years is reconstructed again, or is it gonna work on a Zoom call? Uh, I don't know. But um, just to come back to your point, I I think uh, having having centralized areas of expertise and focus is critical to science. We've seen that and we need to continue to strive to build that.
0: Yeah, and I remember, again, years ago when we were talking, because this goes at all levels. Uh, I I remember your experience of being a young intern, I think, at NRC when Gerard Hertzberg would come and give some inspirational talk while you were having lunch and conclude it, if memory serves, with, uh, get back to work. And, and I think that, that sense of being together and that sense of, of interacting with people that you know are extremely high-level individuals that have accomplished a lot uh, in tandem with people who are on their way to accomplishing a lot, that provides an atmosphere and a culture which is irreplaceable. But that, I think, necessitates, just by definition, I mean, it's a tautology, it necessitates that you have a few places that are the places to be not everywhere can be tautologically the place to be. And, and so it's, 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 and it's difficult, of course, when you're the government and you're, you have not only political orientations, but you feel you have, you have moral responsibilities to be able to uh, spread things out to different areas. So it's a, it's a, it's a difficult balancing act, obviously, I'm not trying to trivialize it.
1: I wanted to say one more thing on this is I read three, three books (laughs) over the holidays on, you know, it's the 100th anniversary, or it was the 100th anniversary of the discovery of insulin. I reread Michael Blitz's book, and the new for, oh, he passed away, but there's a new forward in there, and they talk about the importance of on site physical interaction t- to enable discovery. In the latest, arguably groundbreaking discovery, uh, Jennifer Doudna's uh, book on um, the CRISPR uh, discovery, Uh remember when some, oh my bookshelf over there. Um, they, they actually opened the same kind of theme of, you know, it wouldn't happen unless we were interacting at a meeting, the idea came together and what what to do next. And, and there's been a few other things that I've seen that have all, and meetings I had just before the holidays where we talked a little bit about this and it kept coming up. So I, I you know, I spent a lot of time the last few weeks thinking about how it's going to be different now. I guess, you know, we're doing this call by Zoom right now. And all of my meetings right now we're in the omicron phase are are virtual and i'm not planning on traveling uh, until probably the spring whereas i would have spent 25 to 40% of my time on the road in the past uh, how this is going to play into the discovery process and how we're going to adapt and you know are those people who who have that critical infrastructure of of human ideas around them going to going to be um, <laughs> It's going to be easier for them to move forward in in the discovery process versus the people who are, everything's based on Zoom and maybe you're not as trusting and sharing ideas or maybe you'll be more. I I don't know. Uh, That's going to be a little bit of uh, bet hedging of how that's going to play out. My my hunch is that it's going to be, you know, it's going to be best to have people on site interacting in the coffee rooms again. We need to do that as soon as possible.
0: And you need to also know, I mean, in the fullness of time, if you extend this out, we all know um, who we're gonna be Zooming with now because we've had decades of personal interaction. But just extending that further in time, you're going to have to know who to have those Zoom calls with. If you resonate with someone and if you if you can spark ideas off somebody, then I'm not sure it really makes that much difference whether you're doing it remotely or whether you're doing it by phone or or whatever. But of course, you have to find those people and you you have to develop trust with those people and a relationship with those people. And I find that very difficult to imagine those processes happening online. They could be extended online for further interaction, but I find it difficult to initiate those sorts of connections online. That's just my, my view.
1: Yeah, no, that's a great point.
0: Again, I know we don't have too much time. I wanted to pick up on something else you said, or at least alluded to which has concerned me with respect to future implications of research with the pandemic and brings me to this notion or or perhaps speculation that we're going through really a revolutionary time in the biomedical sciences, and that is the distinction between pure and applied research. So, uh, let me try to elaborate on that uh, fairly quickly. So, I think your average person when they think about the pandemic and 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 I'm I'm going to try to use the past tense because I'm desperate to be using the pandemic in the past tense but they'll look back and they'll say oh you know they brought out these vaccines and there was this thing called the mRNA vaccine and and that was great and it was remarkable how quick things were and they were able to develop these things and that in combination with a bunch of other things finally enabled us to get past this particular moment or so I hope will be in a position of saying in the not too distant future. And so when people look at these vaccines, they've, you know, if if you say something enough in general, then you you feel like you actually understand what's going on. So if you say mRNA enough, then if you're an an average person, you'll you'll think that you really know what that means. But to me, it really represents something fascinating that is associated with this notion of basic research. So here's my sense of things. Tell me if if you agree or disagree or if you'd like to uh, embellish upon it, given your obvious expertise. So I know that mRNA vaccines have been contemplated for a very long time, and they went through all sorts of different iterations um, with respect to possible treatments for cancer, and they're still going through a lot of those interactions, uh, iterations. And there are lots of other things that people are looking at. And I think to to appreciate the moment, you really should be looking at things. You really should make this distinction between the basic research and the applied research that's my perspective so there's a tremendous amount of advancements that have happened over the last i don't know 15 20 certainly five even two years with respect to all the technology for how you deliver the vaccines and the lipids and the you know all this stuff that i don't pretend to know anything about but i can imagine you try to give something to the immune system uh, to penetrate a cell to do something. The immune system is going to try to fight it. You have to try to neutralize that response. You have to package it in a particular way. You have to make sure that it comes in and so forth. And so there's all sorts of things. To me, that's all applied research. And by by saying that, uh, I don't in the slightest way mean to denigrate it. It's vitally important. It's essential. No matter what kind of idea you have, if you can't actually deliver on that idea, it's meaningless at some level if you're actually trying to do something. And yet it's different. It's a different class of things. And that's, I think, what most people associate with when they think of the vaccines. For me, what I think really makes this a revolutionary moment, and I don't know how long the moment's been going on, you're in a much better position to to make that decision, maybe 20 years or 10 years or whatever. There, There are two things that really stand out to me. One is this idea of harnessing the notion of information, which is obviously associated with our whole genetic understanding that what we're doing in terms of how we're treating the body and how we're treating our understanding is to be looking at things in terms of packaging bits of information. That's, that's one aspect. And the second aspect that I think is revolutionary that's associated with mRNA technology is this idea of rather than in a normal vaccine, as you would uh, throw something in, you know, a killed pathogen or attenuated pathogen and let the immune system do its thing, you are harnessing the machinery of the individual cells to be able to produce the proteins that are that then of course kick off the immune response and so forth so to me there there are two things of a kind that are really different one is giving instructions this idea of harnessing information and the other is to be also harnessing the internal mechanistic capacities of individual cells. And that makes this really a revolutionary moment in terms of the implications in all sorts of different directions. It certainly include COVID and they include cancer and God knows what, but they include just, you know, an, an unimaginable scope of of possibilities in terms of treatments and, and understanding. So, so how would you respond to that? Am I completely off base?
1: I think you're right on. Um... You know, the whole mRNA approach that's been used in COVID, of course, that's been built on a lot of basic research over the years, but the application was um, rushed into practice because of the SARS-CoV-2 virus. And But as you said, you're, you're building on information you're introducing into the system or the cells uh, or the organs, whatever it may be. To harness the existing biology to, to modulate some process. In this case, it's the immune response to fight off the virus. So so I think from the application standpoint, yes, we have a vaccine for COVID-19 now, or a set of vaccines that came very, very quickly, because this is all synthetic. You can do all this in the laboratory and introduce it. The, the conceptual leap forward is the fact you can now deliver this information stably into the cells. So in fact, everyone's eyes are wide open right now well if we can do this for this mrna for this you know piece of the virus maybe we can do it for some of the genes that are missing in the 6000 rare diseases some some of them behavioral and even think about delivering it to organs like the brain which were really seen as uh, inaccessible before many of the diseases affect um, subcellular previously unreachable areas in, in different organs and i think it's cystic fibrosis for example uh, there, there's there's a million different applications now that people are starting to think about because it worked for COVID 19. So um, absolutely, and that that's the uh, I think this is this is going to drive the science. But to go back to the basic versus applied, from my perspective, I, I think it's a little bit they're very very similar. It depends on your entry point and, and at what stage you're gathering observations. The way I think of a purely basic research problem is um, you come up with a a theme or an area you wanna study. In some cases, it's wrapped around a hypothesis. And then you do a bunch of experiments that you think might shed light on your ideas. And this is what we call observations, right? And then you kind of study that data and then you take some steps forward. And and hopefully at some point, and usually someone else translates that into, into an application. Whereas in more applied research, um, you identify a, a a target or a, a driver. You're going, to, you're going to find this disease gene, and then you figure out a path, typically how you think you're going to be able to do that. And along the way, you you collect observations, right? And and in some cases, the observations are going to put you in the right direction towards your target. In other cases, they're actually going to generate completely. Uh, new ideas and observations. Um, in fact, that happens more often than not. and, and that's that's what happened in, in in my research career where the basic questions came from targeted initiatives to start. More traditionally, it's the other way around. it's you, you kind of just go for a walk in the woods and see what you're going to find. So it's, it's a little bit different, but um, at the end of the day, it's, it's access to the information, then harnessing the information, all of bio, biology, you ch- chemistry, physics, everything is based on, on information now. And I think in, in biomedicine, we've now finally figured out a way to, uh, p- perhaps on mass to help uh, modulate cell systems based on delivering information more accurately and, and quickly. So it, that's, the, that's the watershed moment, actually. You hit it right on, is that we can deliver information now to modulate information.
0: That's a, a wonderful point to end on. Is there anything you'd like to add? Is there anything we haven't talked about enough or you'd like to emphasize or, or close with?
1: Um, no, I think the, we covered it. It's, uh, you know, just to build on the, the closing statement, um, the information is there uh, or it will continue to come. But the information has to be distilled into an idea so you can think about how to take things forward. And there's a great, I can't remember where I read this, I think it was the New York Times, there was an investigative story around the development of the mRNA vaccines and how they had to, you know, the, the major challenge was, was getting it across the cell membrane delivery systems and kind of harnessing old technologies that existed. The article was around fights of patents around this and things, but-
0: I think it was in nature- because I I think I read the same uh, piece. There was a Nature piece.
1: Yeah, that's right. Thank you. But it, you know, again, it was someone's ideas of oh yeah. I kind of remember about someone working in this area. We we would we pursue this. It was the same in the CRISPR book I read. And of course, the insulin was you know Banting's idea, but in fact, it was based on a lot of other ideas that were before him. So he'd stand on the shoulders. Um, so you have to you have to really have the human mind working on things and thinking about and then the connections happen how this plays out in the future around big data and artificial intelligence and machine learning i think this is a this is the wild west i think it's a really really exciting time i think for those of us who are only relying on the the kind of traditional approach of of the human mind in the coffee room coming up with the ideas or the connections that's going to continue of course but i suspect that the major major advances that will come in the next few years are going to be at the intersections of different disciplines and different types of information so uh, we're going to need to have um, computers' input on on this to help distill. We started out this this uh, discussion about distilling information to um, to help enable or facilitate ideas. Um, you know how how to do that in the most productive way. I think will be very interesting, and perhaps that'll be the merging of biology and physics. Maybe this is where it will happen.
0: I hope you enjoyed this pandemic perspectives podcast. Once again. Our Pandemic Perspectives documentary, released in early March 2022, is available for rent or purchase through the Ideas Roadshow app. While the accompanying book, Pandemic Perspectives A Filmmaker's Journey and 10 Essays, is available in print and ebook through all major book distributors and an audiobook on the Ideas Roadshow app. See ideasroadshow.com for more details.